welcome to a very special quarantine edition of Iron Weeds. We are uh, recording remotely. David and I broadcasting live from the containment zone. <laughs> um, David and I had some mild uh, flu-like symptoms last week, and we're waiting to get David's COVID test in "quote unquote" days. Yeah, I got to meet a celebrity. It was like meeting a celebrity. We we're like, oh gosh, maybe I have COVID. That's that's fun. That's fun. In fact, <laughs> and, we were uh, so concerned that uh, about uh, contamination that we invited someone on the pod today to talk about <laughs> being contaminated. <laughs> we did. We are uh, we are hashtag blessed to have our guest Karma joining us through Google Hangout. Um, Karma is a master's student at Albany Med, studying microbiology and writing her thesis on pneumonic plague diseases. So. Uh, welcome, Karma. Thank you for coming on Ironweeds. Thank you for having me. And, and actually, uh, you know, it made it sound like we we were proactive, but it was actually Karma that was. She's like, can, can I wait? <laughs> She's like, why isn't anyone talking? <laughs> yeah, to immunologists? talk to me. <laughs> yeah, yeah, like like there's pay attention like, to me. It's, yeah, it's yeah I'm well, and, and people obviously should. So I, I'm going to describe what um, happened to me, and then you can tell us. Uh, um, how many different ways I just like exposed everyone to this deadly virus. So I, you know, I, I, on, on Tuesday, I, I, I taught my class and then afterward, I wasn't really feeling so hot. And then I like didn't leave the house ever since then. And uh, except to go to my annual physical uh, this Friday. And um, I told them that I hadn't been feeling so hot. And then they're like, have you been to China? They said it just like Trump does. And they're like, China. They said it like that. No, they didn't. But um, uh, and I said, like, well, I was there back in January. And uh, she basically ran away from me at that point and uh, came back with a, a sheet of paper uh, saying that I need to go to the nearest uh, COVID testing facility, which was like 20 minute drive away. So if I showed up on the bus... That's like a three bus transfer experience to get to a testing center. And then if you were on a bus and you showed up to this testing center that I showed up to, you would have had to wait in the parking lot in 45 degree weather in the rain to get into the testing center because they only had one, the uh, the intake room only uh, kept one person in it. It was only big enough for one person. Well, as we know, viral infections are best fought in cold, rainy weather yes. standing outside. <laughs> right. That's the ideal yeah. way to boost your... It basically makes you stronger. Right. Um, it's, it's like that all-beef diet, but for your immune system. Right. Yeah. yeah. And, which is why the security guards on the outside weren't wearing masks and coughing a bunch, which is true. That, also that to happened. strengthen your immune yes. system. Yeah, it's like a gauntlet. <laughs> yeah. And so, yeah. What, what doesn't kill you? Right, right Karma? Mm-hmm. So, I don't know. I just feel like there's already signs of you know xenophobic behavior just from was it a nurse who like freaked out and panicked when she heard you you were yeah, in China? Was, yeah it was a receptionist at the, oh, at the okay. front yeah um yeah. and it's like I, I i teach at u albany where we've had at least two, two confirmed cases. cases yeah so like that's where if i have it like that's where it's from not from my mm-hmm. two-month-old trip to china which was in Shenzhen, which was like 300 miles away from wuhan where it was being contained already or i don't even know if it yeah. was a big deal well, back I, just, then. I don't remember. I feel like, yeah, it, it, it was definitely on the radar in January. Um, the reason why it's COVID-19 is because they found out about it uh, November 2019. Ah, okay. Um, so it's the 19th yeah. vintage. It's, the 19th <laughs> yeah, is the vintage. Yeah, very good year mm. for, for COVID. The terror of the, of the virus. <laughs> just 
can't be beat. but um yeah i just feel like reporters and journalists do such a disservice to the public especially when we know we're super xenophobic you know we talk about china as if it's this one thing this homogenous thing but i feel like it's more appropriate to talk about the provinces or you know the specific areas in the provinces you can't say china and have it mean anything you know what i mean <laughs> Yeah, it's like, you know, if it, like the the weird things that like people in Eastern Ohio do to like food is, you know, completely different <laughs> from what the weird shit that we do to food over here. Like it's completely different worlds. Yeah. You know, so in the in, in, in you know, I was I was just uh, uh on Twitch doing a thing about Soviet cities and like you go up to like the northern part of China and uh, I think it's Hardin, I think is the name of the the town is it like has a a Russian Orthodox church in it. Like it just looks like Russia. And like, there's yeah. the Uyghurs out in, in uh, Western China. Mm-hmm. Like it's a complete, like it's, it's an enormous it's so country. Diverse. It's yeah, so diverse. Yeah. I've also noticed how, you know, I'm looking at these charts and these maps that track outbreaks and stuff like that. Um, a lot of the time they track it by country and it, you, I can't, I can't tell much from a map that shows one big blob for China or one big blob for the U.S., you know, because it all relies on borders and countries. But I want to know specifically where in larger countries where outbreaks are happening. This is for most, like, epidemiological studies. You know, it's it's not by, like, the epicenter of an outbreak. It's just by the country. Yeah, viruses don't have tiny little passports, and they all stay <laughs> within, you know, within uh, the, their designated regions. Yeah, yeah. because uh, yeah, it's like like color coding Luxembourg versus you know Russia or China, right, or Brazil, like two like completely different scales. Mm-hmm. So it's meaningless. Yeah, it, it th- is th- meaningless. Th- yeah, doesn't completely useless. So, so yeah, um, so karma. I, I, in my experience, there's nothing better than being in the middle of writing a compiling a massive document on a topic at the exact same time that everything around that topic is changing. <laughs> um, that happened with my dissertation. And boy, howdy, it was just oh. a ton of fun. And I loved every minute of it. So I'm curious, can you tell us a little bit about your thesis and what like your kind of t- tell us about your work and like how is this current sure. pandemic changing what you're what you're doing? So it doesn't really, really affect my thesis. So I study pneumonic plague. I actually developed two experimental pneumonic plague vaccines. And, you know, we tested in animals. And basically, that's what my thesis was about. I just feel like I have a lot to offer in terms of making sense of this pandemic, because I I do know a lot about immunology and microbial diseases. I'm not a virologist or an epidemiologist but a lot of this stuff is applicable. So when you say pneumotic plague, how is that different from like, just like bubonic plague or, you know, the, the, uh, yeah. the plague in, in uh, that video game that I don't remember that. Never mind. <laughs> <laughs> I was trying to think of the, the video game. There's a video game with plagues in it, right? That that the you one? play it a bunch. Uh, well, where you, there, you play the virus, right? Oh, pandemic! Pandemic. Yeah, yeah, that's a great game. Yeah. The board game, yeah. or there's a there's a like a, a mobile game. I think it's called Pandemic. Maybe it's called something else. Um, but yeah, you like play the 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 whatever the you know bacterial or viral infection is. Huh. Um, 
I always really like to name mine like Ass Crusher or something because then it would be like <laughs> Ass Crusher has infected Spain. Ass Crusher. Yeah. So anyway, um that's just that's my great. that's just my eighth grade boy um Humor inflection. Out, yeah. yeah. Yeah, so wait, what was the question I yeah, so, what, 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 what is mnemonic plague except like oh, a yeah, way, yeah. way to remember all the different kinds of plagues? It's by an acronym, yeah. Right. Sentence. yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so basically, um, the plague, the one that everybody knows about, is caused by this specific type of bacteria, Yersinia pestis. And there have been three major outbreaks, you know, in recorded human history one of which was very recent, actually. And bubonic plague is the type of infection you see after you get bitten by a tick um, that is also carrying the bacteria. But pneumonic plague is considered much more dangerous because the progression and the pathogenicity is much more severe. And its potential as a biowarfare agent has been recognized by the U.S., by the Soviet Union. so it can be passed from person to person, unlike so, unlike bubonic plague. So would COVID-19 categorize as a pneumonic plague, or is it because of the fact that it's a virus, it's not considered a plague? So pneumonia in general, right, is a condition where you have inflammation in your pulmonary tract, and that can be caused from a number of things. So it's just a very general condition. It can be caused by bacteria or viruses or even fungi. Um, most likely when people talk about pneumonia, they, they're talking about the bacterial infection, strep pneumo, but uh, it's not the same. <laughs> plague is plague. So, pneumo- <laughs> yeah, yeah. I got it, got it. So, But you're saying that pneumonia is a um, identification of a symptom of the inflammation of the pulmonary uh, system. So like if you get yeah. fluid in the lungs, that's a type of pneumonia. You can have walking pneumonia. You can have, you know, various types of pneumonia, some of which might be bacterial or some might be viral. So this is a viral contagion uh, that is causing pneumonia. That's like the number one cause of death, correct? Yes, but it's also causing death in, you know, disproportionately in elder, elderly people and people who have chronic illnesses like underlying chronic illnesses Jeez, you know one thing that uh you know they keep saying like get the you, you, they keep talking very abstractly about tests and i i don't think it's uh very clear to most people what the test is and like how to get the test um uh like, like what's the infrastructure needed to to get the test uh and uh i'll say for one that the test kind of sucks to get i'm not I'm not discouraging people from getting it but it is like a throat swab which i think they they're like also testing against other things to see if like you don't have things that are very comp or like like seem similar to COVID nineteen mm-hmm. like the flu. So I think you get like a flu test, and then there is also uh, they they shove two Q tips into like the back of your head through your nose. Uh, and they wiggle and they wiggle it around and pull it out. Yeah, so <laughs> sort of like uh, they, they do uh, to get the brain out during mummification, right? Yeah, Egypt that yeah, we all exactly, learned about in grade school. It's exactly like. So that. what a lot of people don't know is that they're actually they're not taking stuff out; they're putting stuff in. Oh. Rude! Like what? Like <laughs> nano robots? No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> 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 oh my god, Brittany, really believe me for a second? <laughs> I am a very conspiratorially minded person, so you got to watch out when you say shit like that around me, because I will fucking. David, you got to focus and become a car. 
No, it's been like in the Reddit forums, like, oh, they're actually put it's government surveillance or mind control. No. I absolutely love the uh, our conspiracy takes on COVID. <laughs> they are delicious. I'm eating them up. I love Ooh. rules now. All of a sudden, I really love rules, and I want to <laughs> follow them all the time. And I, you should all be in jail. Well, ha- have you guys uh, followed at all um, the, uh, the the sudden socialist take that all these right wing blowhards uh, on Twitter are, are suddenly having now that we're in a pandemic? They're like, "Where the fuck are the tests?" Like, the government's got to mm. get on. <laughs> it's like mm-hmm. ben, ben Shapiro. <laughs> yeah. These people don't know what they have until, you know, they don't have it. Right. Yeah. Why, why don't we uh, uh, just like uh, pull yourself up by your bootstraps to get a test? <laughs> like, oh. Yeah. They oppose, they oppose any kind of like strong government programs, social programs until they realize that if they don't have those, they're, you know, them and their family will be at risk of of dying. So that's pretty convenient. I also think one of the things that this crisis illuminates is like how capable the government actually is of uh, ensuring like basic human rights, like access to like healthcare and uh, paid sick leave and all of these things that now are being taken very seriously, capital V, capital S, in the halls of Congress that... And, you know, Nancy Pelosi, like, rolled over on, I think the recent bill only requires employers with less than 500 employees to provide paid sick leave, which uh, leaves out, obviously, many of the largest employers in the country. But it does sort of prove the lie that, you know, that these aren't necessary social programs um, that we that we actually really, really do need to implement regardless of any kind of pandemic. Okay, I have found mm-hmm. a uh, uh, someone on Twitter, uh, Idaho Bones. Asked everyone, what is the most insane conspiracy theories uh, you've seen around coronavirus? And this one is really good. It's not a conspiracy theory. It's a um, it's a recipe for a a, uh, a vaccine. This is all in caps on Facebook. Uh, people can self vaccinate themselves by spitting in a egg. When you are starting to cook it, you spit germs on your egg. Then while it cooks, it kills the dead germs because of the heat. And then when you eat the egg, you develop antibodies against the virus. Please spread this knowledge. I suggest you do it every day, even when you don't know you have it. It's better to be prepared. God bless you all. So, Karma, spitting in our (laughs) eggs, that's pretty foolproof, right? Like as as an immunology student, that's how we do this. In every case. Yeah. Every single case. How can I fuck that up? That to me, that sounds like just how if you explained to maybe like a, a five-year-old, how do we make flu vaccines? And then they told they went home and told their parents, like that sounds like what they would say. Yeah. Uh another person says that a coworker broke down in tears when someone brought in Chinese food to the office because she thinks it's a bioweapon. Oh my god. David and I actually like the second night that we were sick and we really wanted soup, but we were both feeling quite weak and not feeling like doing it. And I had just read earlier that day about how Chinese food restaurants were like going out of business because nobody would go. So as a activist socialist praxis, we ordered Chinese food. It was and, delicious. Uh, I, nice. And when the guy That's... called, I, I was like, um, can you leave the food on the porch? And then but I didn't want to seem racist. And so I was like, I'm sick. I'm sick. I don't want to get you sick. So we leave the food on the porch. And he was mm-hmm. a very, he was very nice about it. But um, yeah, so we That's did our really good, good practice. That yeah. is really yeah. good practice as a responsible individual. Thank you. Yeah, yeah so I, I really want out... some praise for that because I think it was a really good 
thing that I did. We were really brave yeah. in that moment. Yeah. <laughs> it turns out there is ethical consumption under capitalism. <laughs> Bam. Did it. <laughs> um, so can we talk about masks? and like personal responsibility oh yeah do. yeah, <laughs> yeah. What, what what kind of guy fat fox mask should i wear <laughs> uh, to, well, well to, to the covid19 on... rave party um, yeah, I've been you on this should, tip for you a while. should actually buy a plague mask. Um, oh, yeah, with yeah. like the, yeah. the old with spray in the nose. Uh, yeah. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Um, no, but uh, <laughs> actually, I hear a lot of claims saying that masks don't work. And I he- there's this problem, right, of regurgitating something that is scientific in nature or like medical in nature and just reducing it to to an extent where it's just false, right? So, like, masks do work, but they work better for people who suspect that they have an illness and don't want to transmit it to everybody around them. Um, yeah. It's better... It, it, it's yeah. containment to the body, as opposed to um, uh, keeping all, like, you know, airborne viruses from entering From you, yeah. And that's an incredibly American approach to what, quote-unquote, works, right? Is that if it doesn't keep me from getting infected, then it doesn't work. Whereas but, yeah. if it keeps other people from getting infected by me, by, say, containing my spittle and, like, nose juices... Well, that's that doesn't constitute working, right? Because it doesn't protect me from yeah. outside forces. But also, it does have some barrier function, right? If you are wearing it yourself, it does. And you know, as somebody who has been into like biocontainment facilities, I can tell you that PPE. I'm sorry to give you know like the alphabet soup or whatever, but what is it like personal prote- personal protective equipment? Yeah. So. There's a lot of protocol around putting it on and taking it off. And if you don't follow that, then you're there's little, you know, there's little to do in the way of contain, uh, contamination. And the way that a mask is supposed to be properly weared by especially all the healthcare workers, right? So the healthcare workers right now are on the front lines of this thing. And they're not really being talked about as the most vulnerable population in addition to elderly people and people with chronic respiratory diseases. Um, but they are, and they have to go through so much to protect themselves. And it's a long process. If you, for example, you know, you in daily life, right, you want to put on a mask and you go outside and, you know, you get tired of wearing a mask for a little bit and you put it under your chin or you touch even the outside of that mask, that negates all of the effort that you just just put in to protect yourself because you're not contaminated. People, why the fuck are we teaching people that? Because it's too, it's too difficult, you know? (laughs) I don't think people would understand or follow the, like, it's, it really is such a disservice to just say masks don't work. They work. It's just, we don't, we're not, the average person isn't used to the protocols that are necessary for containment. You know what I mean? Yeah, I mean, at, yeah. At, at the very least, the mask, like, stops you from, like, l- licking uh, uh, arm rails or something, you know? It's like, it's like, <laughs> like, it obviously works. He's like, I'm now I yeah. can't lick anything that I usually like to lick, you know, like, out in public. You know, it's a very, it, yeah. it's, it's uh, obviously a big uh, disservice to me and, like, you know, yeah. the things that I like doing. But, you know, yeah, it's... Uh, well- but like so so this is interesting so then um masks aren't it's we have to expand the definition of like say the technology of of a mask 
and open it up to it's also a practice with the mask and we should and also yeah. there's there's like a a number there's like an n and then a number right and you need like what was it a 95 right is that the mm-hmm. right the, the number determines like how much stuff it blocks yeah so that's the n95 respiratory mask i actually got fitted for one when i first went to albany med and they just they fit everybody who might work with animals and that's you know the high top shelf mask right <laughs> like it's when you're dealing with animals that are infected with contagions and stuff like that. I never had to wear an an N95 mask or anything like that because I wasn't going to infect my animals with deadly stuff. Other people in the lab did that. So I, hmm. I have a box of things that are called N95 masks from when I was doing drywall in, a, in my house. Is that the hmm. same thing? I don't know. <laughs> so I actually... I, 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 I actually just saw a thing um, yesterday on Twitter, which is that construction workers all across the country are completely out of masks. They can't get more. And now that they're doing things like mixing concrete and working with drywall, it's a it's a massive health crisis among construction workers, because when you get these substances, especially like um, like quick crete, mm-hmm. like any kind of concrete that you oh, mix yeah, from a powder, it's yeah, it's nasty. it turns your lungs it, it concretizes your lungs mm-hmm. um so there are yeah. a lot of ways that the hoarding in this crisis is uh just like having brutal impacts on some of the most vulnerable members of our population including like the elderly the immunocompromised and now also just like general working class people who need these healthcare workers who can't get hand sanitizer and masks construction workers who can't get masks like it's really just a nightmare so you know I, that i ride my bicycle all year round and it's still cold and shitty because we live in upstate new york so i'm still riding to work in my balaclava every day and so while i'm you know breathing through this very like thin layer of um fabric um i'm immediately aware of how much moisture is being trapped by even just like this layer of cotton that's like Mm -hmm. over my mouth and so you know as far as uh containing you know my spittle and like the various moistures that are leaving my potentially uh contaminated pulmonary system uh i think that even you know just a t-shirt over your mouth would do a decent amount to uh mitigate the 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 spread uh via contaminated fluids from humans um but yeah like i have the n95 masks as well for when i do work around the house and i'm getting ready to do a basement pour uh and i actually wear them now when i do the uh, litter boxes uh, because it keeps like all the fine uh, little powders that have the brain parasites that make my cats uh, make me love mm-hmm. my cats. You know, you need to just um, embrace from... those, dude. That's that's <laughs> that's good stuff. Uh... But but yeah, I, so I don't know. PB is super important. It sucks that people are hoarding, uh, but like I feel like we should all have this stuff anyway. Given you know just the uh, possibility of things like this. The thing is, is that this is the first time that the U.S. has experienced. Uh, an epidemic like this, China has learned from SARS, right? Which is why culturally you see more people uh, wearing masks in public. And this is another source of xenophobia. You know, we make fun of Chinese people uh, who wear masks and we label them as other, but it's because they have that, that experience. The communities know that if you are sick, you don't want to be passing that shit around. So you have a personal responsibility to put a mask on. It's not really for you know, protecting you from other people. Um, but we haven't experienced that yet. And I mean, I guess we are currently experiencing that, but 
I don't want to paint like too broad of brush, obviously, because I don't want to verge on or commit a racism. But it does strike me that a major difference between like cultures in, say, China and Japan and Western cultures is that like there is a greater sense of social responsibility when it comes to health and that like it's not about protecting yourself from getting sick. It's about protecting the people around you and keeping them from getting sick. And I wonder if that is a combination of like you know, historical experience with these kinds of outbreaks, but also, um, you know, sort of like a a sense of self within a community and what you owe your fellow human being um, in terms of just like being aware of social space and and all of that. Yeah, I think that's a very valid take on all this. So let's talk about hoarding, because I think, (laughs) right, like, or are you going to go in a different correction, Chris? Like what? Oh, I was just going to say, um, you know, uh, just like David, I've been to um, uh, Asia uh, in the last several years. And I spent a cumulative of three weeks in um, Shinfuji, um, a city in, you know, Japan. And um, I want to just point out that, yeah, uh, wearing masks out in public um, is totally normal, uh, which is to the point where it's almost like the majority of people were like walking around with masks when I was um, uh, there. And at first, you know, being a Western, you know, person, I was like, holy shit, there's a lot of sick people out or, and about like, you know, like, and, and it was when I saw the mask, I saw like, it jumped out as a potential danger to me. Like, oh, mm-hmm. this person is like wearing a PPE that I'm not used to because they must be like incredibly contaminated or like, you know, um, or, or risky. And so I feel like if I wore a mask in the US, uh, people would be scared of me. Like that would be like their first um, uh, instinct just because it, it, it's so not normalized. Um, but I also work around a lot of Japanese people because the company that I work for is uh, Japanese owned. And uh, the Japanese coworkers that I have, um, about a third of their days they come in, they wear masks. And I am always just like, it took me a long time to normalize it uh, mm-hmm. in my own head, like to, to stop uh, viewing people who are wearing masks as uh, particularly, uh, you know, vectors of contamination and rather just, you know, awfully polite people. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, um, I, I was also thinking of like all the different ways that technologies would uh, change based on like a, a culture of wearing masks, like uh, like face ID on your phone. Right. You know, like there's a reason why I think like uh, a lot of the uh, American or sorry, the Chinese based uh, cell phone companies or manufacturers of those devices um, still have thumb readers uh, on them. And I think a lot of it is because, like, if you're wearing a mask, like you said, Chris, like three, a third of the time, you know, like the, the, a face ID kind of thing is face scanner isn't going to work. I miss the thumb ID. That's all I have it? to contribute. <laughs> no, I have the new, the new iPhone has face ID. Um, and sometimes I open Ew. my phone when I don't want to because I happen to be looking at it and I don't care for that. <laughs> So when I first started at Albany Med, we were taught all of this because um, we it, it's a research center and a hospital all in one. And I got into the habit of wearing masks if I was stuffy or sniffly or had a runny nose. And I have like unpredictable allergies. So sometimes it would just be allergies and I didn't have to worry, but I don't want to take the chance. And yeah, I would be bombarded with questions like, why are you wearing a mask? And well, duh, because I want to protect other people in case I have something. I don't think I do. If I, if I really thought that I, that I did, I would self-quarantine, sure. But like, I still don't want to take that, that risk, especially in a hospital, you know, where you're in contact with so many different people and you don't know what their 
health statuses. Yeah, absolutely. It's bizarre that uh, that's not more normalized in a, especially in like very dense population centers where you're constantly touching everything and being in really close proximity with people all the time. Like it seems kind of like a no brainer. And really, if you see somebody with a mask on, you should feel more safe around them because at least, you know, they're not like spitting mm-hmm. in your face. Yeah, they're my, being my conscientious at least. Um, yeah, exactly. <laughs> So hopefully uh, people can get masks uh, and hopefully the market dynamics that are causing people to buy all of them and charge an arm and a leg for them uh, will be severely uh, changed and those people severely punished or at least socially outcast. Well, you know what? What I think is actually going to help this crisis more than anything is now because China's done such a fantastic job of containment and quarantine and now they're finally sort of starting to get back to a new normal once they can start manufacturing shit for us again, we might actually have some hand sanitizers and masks and Clorox wipes because China will be back in the game making the shit that the entire rest of the world has become reliant on for day-to-day activity. So that's- Yeah, Jack Ma mm-hmm. just uh, donated like some odd amount of million uh, masks and wipes and stuff, uh, the billionaire owner of Alibaba. So to America, I think this brings us into a nice transition to hoarding. I, th- I think it's hard to talk about this crisis without talking about this really bizarre, I think almost uniquely American predilection mm-hmm. to like, you know, there are two types of hoarding, it seems to me, that are currently going on. There's sort of the like upper middle class, like I got to get mine mentality yeah, of hoarding, a kind of preppery type thing. But then there's this other really bizarre uh, phenomenon that I'm seeing, which is actually people, and there's there was an article published. I don't remember maybe the Daily Beast. I'll try to find it and link it in the show notes. But it was um, these people who went out at, back in like mid February when the crisis was still not quite a crisis yet, but people could sort of see what was coming on the horizon. And these people going to, uh, especially a lot of like Dollar Generals in fairly rural places, and just buying flats of masks hand sanitizer wipes anything they could find and then selling them they're hustlers baby yeah and then selling them on amazon at you know three four five hundred percent uh uh price increase markup exactly like there was this one guy who was selling one dollar bottle of hand sanitizers for twenty dollars on amazon and so like both of those types of hoarding are essentially have you know roughly the same effect but they're done for very different reasons and i wonder if that's something worth like kind of peeling apart and seeing what that i'm very interested in what this crisis says about the kind of american psyche like in our our sort of like cultural sickness that we have with not caring about our fellow human beings Mm -hmm. and um And and having to fuck them over on some level to be able to like make rent yeah, because a lot of these people who are hoarding for the purposes of selling on Amazon are like working class people who don't have who live in like Rust Belt cities where there's not a lot of industry and they don't have a lot of job opportunities. And they've this is a practice they've been doing all along, whether it's with like tennis shoes that are in demand or like I've seen the same people do it with breakfast, yeah. cere- like special edition breakfast cereals that go on sale. Yeah, they call it arbitrage. Exactly. That's a, yeah, arbitrage. Um, so now they're just doing with pandemic materials which seems disaster arbitrage yeah it seems like uniquely um immoral and but but like maybe it's uh, there's no ethical consumption under capitalism like maybe there's no (laughs) ethical hoarding under capitalism i don't know yeah i mean early on i i was wondering to myself what is the government going to do to try to profit off of this pandemic um and it's i think it's just 
the American culture, right? To try to make a buck wherever and whenever you can. It's not just, I mean, it also depends on who does it, right? Like, I don't blame, do I blame working class people for trying to just make some money? No, I don't. Do you? I don't do that. Like, I just don't understand why people hoard teepee. That's the only thing that I'm wondering about. <laughs> it's so strange. Do people know that uh, the, I was listening to the Truanon, their whatever, third or fourth episode now on coronavirus. And I, I think they're a little more uh, like conspiratorial. Um, well, they're, they're, I mean, that's not my prize. You know, Ooh. I am also quite conspiratorial. I think they're sort of like uh, overhyping. The, they're they're very panicky. And I, I don't necessarily know if that's helpful yeah. for people. But it definitely isn't helpful. One thing that Brace Belden, uh, one of my just very favorite podcasters, keeps saying is like, you do realize you can just use your hand and water, right? Like you can wash your pooper without paper. <laughs> um, and as a take a shower, listen, as yeah. a bidet positive house, <laughs> David and I have had a bidet for like eight years. It, nice. it totally blows my mind. Way that ahead there of the are curve. Still Way ahead. People in the world who don't clean their butts with water when they poop because you're walking mm-hmm. around with a poopy butt all day. But hey, that's your business. Yeah. Um, that's my favorite part of Japan, actually. Every single bathroom had a bidet, and the seats were all like Toto, like really fancy ones, where uh, they have like the warmed seat and like the the warm water jet as opposed to the cold water. Yeah, jet. ours is a very bare bones. It shoots cold water at your butthole, and it is refreshing. Let me tell you, um, it wakes it you is. right up. Yep. Yeah, uh, but but so like that's <laughs> the toilet paper thing is so strange to me because if I'm in a quarantine situation, I know I may not be able to leave my house to get goods for a month. Toilet paper is like the last thing. I mean, I want to make sure that I have like a normal amount of toilet paper, but I don't plan on like shitting my brains out for a month. So why would I need? Yeah. So like two things, two things about that. Right. I, I feel like it speaks to people's lack of understanding on what this illness is. It really does run like a flu, right? For people who can get over it, it runs like a flu, although it's a little bit more serious than the flu because they're is concerned for long-lasting respiratory impacts, which I feel like health workers would be the number one targets and victims of, right? Um, So, I like, it's not Ebola. You're not going to shit your brains out. And also, doesn't everybody else poop in the shower and stomp it down the drain? Or am I just like... (laughs) (laughs) The the waffle stomp. That's a a Reddit deep deep cut right there, the waffle stomp. Oh, man. But yes, exactly. Yes, I do. Yeah. yeah actually, when I was a little kid, I had a, for some reason, I just like could not understand that being in a bathtub was different from sitting on a toilet. And so I used to always pee in the bathtub and my mom would get really mad at me. Um, uh, but there's then two this, types of, this, sorry. This one time I pooped in the bathtub and uh, my mom had to dig oh, it, whoa. had to scoop it out with a cup. And she was, she was pretty mad. Um, and I, I, I would love to tell you that's the last time I pooped in the bathtub, but I'm not a liar. So, I, yeah, so there's two types of people in the world, right? People who pee in the shower and people who lie. I'm sorry. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, absolutely. I, I heard it. Uh, I heard it cures athletes. But really? Oh, yeah. I'm just not yeah, even enough to believe about that. The, <laughs> I hear urine cures a lot of stuff, but I don't know how credible my sources are. So. Well, if you pee in your eggs, I hear you can't ever get sick again. Yeah, that's how that works. <laughs> you, you you no longer become allergic to pee. You, you develop <laughs> antibodies to, to piss. Your immune system to yeah. Piss, yeah, yeah. Piss antibodies, very important. 
Yeah, I um, I, I think what one thing about um, to get back to to hoarding, you know, I I think um, a lot of it is the this romanticization of a uh, of the entrepreneur as like you identified a need and then you're gonna go fill it, and so it's, it's a lie that you tell yourself that you're um, you're acting on behalf of like the the invisible hand to make sure that the uh, uh, distribution of 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 goods is done properly and and that instead of like actually caring about the end effect of people being healthy you're really just sort of caring about uh how you can uh make a quick buck off of mm-hmm. in needed things yeah and, and it turns right. out when you build a culture up based on consumerism people don't really know how to react to crises outside like it, it it's everything from the micro self care like go have a shopping day to make yourself feel better to uh there's a global pandemic i better buy all the hand sanitizer and toilet paper i can get my hands on right, right. like when that's your yeah. paradigm that's your founding paradigm you don't have another way of dealing with things because if you buy mm-hmm. more stuff you're more prepared right right so more, uh, more a, a, a a pile of toilet paper to the ceiling means that you are the most ready to ride out some sort of global pandemic. Yeah. Rise and shine, grinders. Let's get these face masks, uh, hand sanitizers, uh, alcohol wipes, toilet paper, uh, you know, N95 masks. Let's let's get them. Uh, if I could just offer some words of advice on what you should have in your household. Oh, yes, please. Please do, yeah. Tons of beans. So, um, <laughs> actually, yes. Um, non-perishables, obviously. See, I was right. <laughs> I was actually listening to somebody on the radio saying how they normally are a part of this bean club where they get like pounds of beans sent to his house. How do like, I get quarterly. into this club? I don't know. <laughs> Apparently there's a wait list. I don't know. Anyway, <laughs> off topic. Um, but so when I went to the store, right, to prepare for everything that I needed, I picked up a bottle of alcohol uh, for the outside, not the inside. Um <laughs> And some bleach because I had run out. Usually I do have bleach and alcohol at the house, but um, for some reason we were low. And I think that's it. I mean, I usually have a lot of soap. I've noticed that the the shelves for soap are pretty much cleared out. So I'm, so like, when I'm I, just wondering when I went to the grocery store without soap. Yeah, when I went to the grocery store, there was real clean. Uh, there was no bleach, no rubbing alcohol, no alcohol swabs, no hand sanitizer, no antibacterial wipes or Clorox wipes of any kind. Um, there, I think I said rubbing alcohol already. Yeah, there was like nothing that you and th- this was at the price shopper on Hoosick Street. Uh, everything else was fully stocked except for those very specific sanitizing items. And when I got to check out, I was talking to one of the women about it. I was like, I can't believe. There, you can see the space where there used to be rubbing alcohol, and it's clear that there was at one point like 30 bottles there. And mm-hmm. she was like, yeah, we don't get another shipment of that until next week, and they're telling us that they're not even going to be able to supply us with our regular reshipment of those items. Jesus. I uh, mean, that is like, a way to sanitize. That is the best way to sanitize surfaces. Yeah. Right? Yeah, 90, 97 or 90%, or is it 70%? It's mm-hmm. above 70% alcohol solution. Yeah. We have ammonia. We have a big bottle of ammonia. Will that that sanitize things? I haven't heard of ammonia. I mean, I saw that there were some bottles of ammonia at the store, but honestly, I don't know. Mm, okay. Um, well, I'll just yeah, drink I, a bunch of it and see, just yeah, to, just to just find out. out. Yeah, you, well, I, well, you, gargle, gargle ammonia and bleach at the same time. Okay, yeah. yes, okay. 
Uh, put it in my Maybe eyes. We you, uh, <laughs> we you, don't do that, people. Just in case we <laughs> yeah, yeah. real like parody, mm-hmm. parody, parody. Yeah, don't don't do that. I don't okay, know. We, so we maybe this is a good segue for like how the virus is transmitted. Yes. Um. So we know that because it's obviously like a flu-like illness that infected people can cough or you know. Uh, sneeze or just even talking, you release a lot of aerosols into the air and inhaling that. Yeah. (laughs) You just even like singing, talking, (laughs) it releases a lot, which is why we're doing this remotely, right? (laughs) Right. Yeah. yeah. Um, So you definitely can contract that. um, But also it's been shown that viable virus particles have been found and detected on plastic and metal surfaces for 14 about 14 hours um but they were that's the median so there were studies that showed that they could retrieve viable particles for up to three days no so so i I don't want to interrupt but i also want to sort of point out like this is being spread by a virus which like according to our most basic definitions isn't alive nor dead correct so it's not like it needs food. It just needs like to not dry out, not yes. be irradiated, right? Exactly. But also, we know from just general virology that the more deadly a disease, a, an infectious disease, um, in terms of that virus or bacteria, it's actually less fit because, from the virus point of view, you don't want to be causing too deadly or too serious of an illness because then you don't get very far and. I think, David, you were saying before about how that was how SARS resolved itself. I was really young when that happened, so I don't really remember. Yeah, I'm pretty but, sure um, what happened was, like, yeah, it was, like you said, it was too powerful. It was too deadly, yeah. Yeah, yeah, and so, like, you, you, and you wouldn't get very far. everybody who got infected had symptoms. Yeah. Like, it was, as opposed to, like, COVID-19, uh, when you got it, you had symptoms, which meant you knew to stay home and stay away from people, as opposed to what we have now, which is, like, so many people are asymptomatic, so they go about their day-to-day lives all the while infecting, like, untold mm-hmm. numbers of people. And that's funny because in that mobile game I mentioned earlier that I can't remember the name of it, um, but you have to, like, in the beginning, you have to make your contagion have very low oh. symptoms. Um, because if it's too obvious, like, if people are, like, if coughing is one of your symptoms, it spreads better, but um it doesn't like people go out less it's a very good game maybe i'll link to it anyway that's yeah that would be awesome because so many people are having such diverse responses to like what the right thing to do right now is like you see fucking brooklynites on twitter being like is it wrong if i want to go like get a cocktail and everybody just being like yeah it's wrong you're a 27 year old healthy blogger and you're like potentially a disease vector and so maybe that's actually a good question for you karma is like what should people be going out and getting craft cocktails in new york city right now (laughs) i was actually really new york city the topic of like infectious spread in new york city was on my mind because one day it seemed like one person two confirmed cases and i didn't hear anything else about it and i thought there would be a lot more cases um, just considering how dense New York City is. But um, I think they're seriously taking, they're taking matters into their own hands. And I know a lot of people who are working from home. And I know somebody else who whose office has like half of the people working from home one week and the other half the next week. I Social distancing 
is real. Like you need to distance yourself from large groups of people that my sister asked me, should I go to the gym? And I said, no, like, <laughs> don't go to the gym. Not. Yeah. Like yeah, it's all metal. <laughs> it's all metal. And nobody and wipes people the breathing heavily down. and like, yeah, uh, uh, yeah it's <laughs> disgusting. Like gyms are gross like, on a normal no. day without a pandemic. Mm-hmm. Hot and moist. But, um, it's hot and moist. Yeah. You should definitely be refraining. I mean, I know so many people with mental health issues who are concerned because social distancing is really what they don't need right now. Um, But I'm not, I personally, if you really know what I'm doing, I'm not necessarily um, cutting off all contacts with my friends. It's just groups, large groups that I'm very wary of. So don't go into places where, you know, there's going to be crowds of people, large groups of people, but I'm still down for like one-on-one hangout sessions, you know, with somebody who I know hasn't exhibited symptoms. Yeah. Or somebody who, that isn't particularly vulnerable. Exactly. Or somebody that I know is also being responsible. Right. Right. Like, yeah, right. It, and, and it's, it's, it's ironic because in these times we want to see the people we love and cherish and, you know, still have. Um, and like, you know, I lost my father uh, in uh, when I was 24 um, but my mom's still alive and she's doing fine. Um, and she actually just went to a hospital visit for an unrelated surgery and got out and I want to go visit her, but I'm very concerned, uh, that I might actually be a latent, uh, vector. Uh, and she's, you know, like old enough that it warrants concern. And it's a very uh, strange feeling. And especially because you had recent contact with us who, although yeah. our symptoms have been incredibly mild and could be nothing more than just like a, a, a respiratory cold. irritation or a common cold. Um, but like David quite possibly was exposed at SUNY. And, you know, I had an old man cough in my mouth at the grocery store two weeks ago. And like, it's just there. Which was literal violence. Literal violence, as as listeners to our last episode will, will remember. Um so, yeah, it's really tough to, like, I really wanted bacon yesterday, and so I went to Stewart's and I bought bacon, but, like, I wore gloves, and I didn't, like, I tried not to touch anything except for the bacon and the beer that I wanted to buy. It's, it really does, like, change your relationship to space and people, I think, going through something like this. Definitely. Um, and I would say that because the incubation period of COVID-19, the median co- incubation period is around five days. You don't know if you or your friend is carrying it and not showing symptoms. Um, so it's still in your body. It's replicating. But most people before the five-day mark aren't going to have any symptoms. So I would also suggest, you know, spacing out, seeing your friends, if you really, really have to, that is. I mean, I'm personally built for quarantine because I don't really like um, leaving my house or talking to people that much. <laughs> um, so it's been Homebody great. Homebody superpowers. Yeah, so it's been great for me. Like, I can catch up with people on the phone. I talked to our friend oh, Jen, yeah, who lives too. approximately a block and a half away yesterday on the phone. Talked to my mom on the phone. Um, this is uh, the only place I really ever go is the grocery store and Chris's house to podcast. So it's like, but it, it's very, I can only imagine for people who rely on regular socialization with others for like a positive mental health that that like how difficult this has got to be for people um that we're we're entering we already live in an age of profound loneliness i think that is a direct result of like high or late capitalism depending on how you want to term it or just like the atomization of our society in general the fact that people are just we're all very lonely um 
even when we are together. So now we are having to be lonely and apart. And I think that's a, a very dangerous um, uh, confluence of, of social factors. But hey, technology is pretty crazy as it relates to telepresence. And I got to say, you know, when I close my eyes, I can almost smell y'all. You know what I mean? <laughs> I'm so sorry about right. that, dude. I'm really sorry. Yeah, please don't please don't smell us with your mind. Yeah, yeah, I know, but uh, but but I'm just saying it it is pretty crazy that it feels like I'm in the same room with y'all, and um, you know, for a lot of the uh aspects of socialization, you know, we're incredibly social species. Um, it it does a trick. It does a lot of the trick. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah, I'm I'm, I'm uh, in the process, uh, like every other uh educator right now, trying to figure out how to. Um, teach my class online. So, like, teach moving a class from uh, a, an in-person uh, classroom experience to an online one usually takes a couple months to redo the whole syllabus and all the different ways that students interact with you. And the pacing is completely different. The assignments have to be different, and uh, that can charge you. You could charge like a couple thousand bucks as an expert to turn your classes into online ones and sometimes uh uh universities even give grants to professors to to switch their classes to online because they want to be able to uh pay a lot less to teach a lot more students but um yeah if you can charge a hundred dollar fee for a course that you know twenty thousand people pay or even like just a thousand people pay as opposed to ten students it's like yeah it's yeah yeah but uh i'm i'm just like yeah I'm, i'm trying to figure out how the hell to get uh, all that, all that done, while also wondering if I'm infected and a bunch of other shit. But uh, uh, I'm using, I use I, like we. Uh, so I've started using Discord and Twitch like a gamer because I know that every yep. university is switching to Zoom and Skype, and that shit's gonna crash all the time. Yeah, and so I'm like yeah, not even bothering with it. So I, I, I'm, I'm going full gamer mode. And like, at least I know I now know every single one of my students that's a gamer because there's like some of them that are just like super pumped that yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the, the, the rest of their life is now moving to Discord. Uh, yeah, uh, but now now they can post, you know, gifts in the chat and that's way better than IRL class. Hell yeah, dude. 30% of their grade is going to be gifts. Here's something to chew on for any um, any like academics or professors or anybody who may be listening to the pod. Um, so Zoom, if you are using an administrative account, like an account provided by your university, you should be aware of the fact that Zoom offers incredibly powerful surveillance tools to the owners of those accounts. So... If you're teaching your class on Zoom or you're attending a class on Zoom and you're using a university account or login, they can drop in on your class anytime they want. They can monitor all numbers of, you know, attendees to a digital to a virtual conference. They can basically see everything that you're doing and collect tons and tons and tons of data on you. So if you are using Zoom and you don't want to be part of the uh, 21st century panopticon, I highly recommend creating your own account. Um, and not using an administrative or university account. That's just something I was reading on Twitter from an educator yesterday. Yeah, I know that uh, one way that that becomes more complicated is that the administrative accounts uh, 
give you more options and to add more people and it can la- the conversation can last longer than like a free version or something like that but it's very true. yeah it's um it's it's going to be really uh interesting to say the least to watch what happens uh when everything goes quote unquote back to normal if it ever does like what the new normal is going to be is like this is going to be a, it's a perfect shock doctrine experience where yes uh institutions are going to find out how much stuff they really need to bring back and how much they can just uh, keep uh, in this, like, kind of shittier uh, digital version of, you know, like yeah. online classes and stuff like that. I, I would not be surprised if a bunch of stuff just does not return to normal because it's cheaper uh, to do it a, in a little bit shittier way. Uh, so the digitization of uh, education <laughs> that that's happening right now um you know there's there's a lot of upsides to it especially if it's uh considered a basic human right that's shared with everyone mm-hmm. and archived and like really well uh available and the actual institution of education and professorship and all of that is maintained uh, somehow other than that. Because I, I think about this, like, you know, we want free public college, right? Really bad. Like, uh, and it makes sense that we would get it because like so many uh, other uh, industrialized Western countries, whatever, you know, you want to call it, like uh, have free public university uh, for anybody that wants it. Um, and so I think that we could definitely get it and we should get it. There's nothing technologically stopping us from just like putting an incredibly like vast and high quality uh, amount of, uh, you know, modern education like on the web. And I guess like as as educators and people who are in academia, um, like what do you think about that? Do you think that the cost of cutting out uh, the the professional nature of education is too high to offset the value of being able to disseminate all of that yes like, d- <laughs> sorry <laughs> sorry yeah, i yeah. cut you off yeah, 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 no. Yeah, yeah. no 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 that, that uh, if, please, if, please go on if you like your professor you can keep it <laughs> yeah that's exactly what's gonna happen so this is already yeah this is there's been a lot of panic over the years about MOOCs, uh massively online something courses mose i don't remember what yeah. all the acronyms are about but basically what ends up happening is this intense professionalization of online academia where you'll have big stars in the field you know the the top tier historians the top tier sociologists whatever running MOOCs, these online courses and getting thousands of students to sign up for their courses, making huge bucks on it. Meanwhile, other educators who are, let's say, in the lower strata, who are already having a really hard time getting ahead in the field, um, get left out of that whole dynamic. Because if you're not already a sort of micro-celebrity within your field, you can't get a foothold. And so you're already seeing, like, the adjunctification of the university and how those people are incredibly highly exploited. Mm-hmm. You, those mm-hmm. people will be entirely shut out from the field. And so what does that do when you now have none of those like younger, potentially in many cases, more radicalized voices in the in the sort of academic economy and the academic milieu? Um, you're you create a really powerful hegemonic discourse. And this was part of the critique coming out of digital humanity studies when I was in school was that. 
like MOOCs and online education by their very like the technological affordances of the medium will create an increasingly hegemonic discourse where like you can't it's harder to be an open Marxist with your students when you have thousands of students and you're constantly being monitored. So what happens to those radical right. pedagogies in that system? They become muted. They they potentially disappear altogether. Yeah. It, oh, man, you're getting uh, Daniel Prager so hard right now. <laughs> yeah, dude, yeah, dude. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, when you think about like, like what what MOOCs are good for. Yeah, it's uh, to uh, broadcast a lot uh, like a very specific sort of to broadcast one message to a bunch of people with minimal interactive components afterward, right? Because like, there's really just still nothing that can match the presence of like a couple people in a seminar room. Like you, you, you just can't reproduce that. The technology just isn't there to uh, create that kind of immersive learning experience. Even with us right now, the lag is disrupting the flow of our conversation. It's yeah. harder to interject. Like I think we're. It's easier for mm-hmm. um, us to like. It, it creates a very different communication medium that is harder to navigate in a comfortable conversational way. Also, it's not as accessible as maybe we think it is. I was speaking mm-hmm. to a couple of people. One is a good friend and the other was an administrator at Olby Med. And they kind of reminded me that not everybody has internet access and maybe they're the only way that they, they can get online, especially in rural places, is by going to the library, which we we don't know if libraries are going to be shut down. Um, they already are. Because of yeah. They already are. Yeah. 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 Or, well, but even, even, even worse, like, so, um, even if it, like you can only get on the internet on a library, a lot, m- many more people only have a uh, mobile device, like a phone, as their main source of internet access. And a lot of these, um, like Blackboard and, and Canvas, these like systems that, uh, are meant to uh, teach people or like be a platform for for online learning uh, suck on mobile. Like they, there's a lot of stuff that is just like very poorly made for uh, mobile interfaces. And so, yeah, you even if you do have Internet access, you, you the device isn't uh, good enough. And then you also have like a, a digital divide in terms of like ability where you have a bunch of uh, tenured boomer professors that don't that re- have refused to learn the tools of their trade to like learn how to uh, teach people. And to some degree, that's like a Luddite, it's Luddite in like the best sense of the word. And that like, no, I'm not going to learn how to use these technologies that do more like what do what we just said that they do. You know, they increase monitoring and they de-skill the the job. But at the same time, it's also like I got an email from uh, an administrator at the university that is like, for those that are that are more tech savvy and have already set up their online courses, go help you know your your uh, peers. And it's like each one teach one. Yeah, each one teach. One. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah. And no, it's like, well, hey, yeah, you. yeah. I mean, like, yeah, that that sounds nice, but it's also like, oh, yeah. okay. Like, when do I get paid uh, for that sort of work? You know, it's it's not like I, I like was born a. Uh, knowing how to do this like it's a skill yeah 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 well that sounds fucking shitty dude i think chris Chris, the point the point that you were trying to get out of like the cost benefit analysis of this and like making education and information more open to more people the uh, to me the way to do that is to make all public colleges tuition free anybody can attend um, mm-hmm. do away with the credit system that requires people to be full time in order to get access to certain institutional uh, 
options and make everything and make it online at the same time so that people who can't be yeah. physically co-present for a wide variety of reasons can watch recordings of lectures or watch them at home. Um, and yes, accept the fact that they will have a reduced level of interactivity with the course, but at least they're able to because like you can't solve these problems simply by like. And, you know, David's STS, uh, science technology studies, and I'm a media studies scholar. And if anything, from our combined fields, we've learned that you can't just like add technology and fix it. Like you have to change mm-hmm. underlying social structures and and shift paradigms. And so I think that you're never going to like this. This movement online for education can be very valuable, but it won't be that val- all it will do is hurt working people unless you shift the underlining um, you know, social social structures that are already oppressive and exploitative. Yeah, yeah and, and that's yeah. that's part of the reason why I'm excited. Actually, that's why I decided to use Twitch and Discord. Is that these are two systems that are one pretty like there's a practical purposes that they're user friendly and uh, um uh and and are used to having a shit ton of people on them. Like they're not getting inundated the way zoom is uh so like there's those two practical reasons but also it's just the fact that um like they automatically like you can automatically cut clips and it's very public facing in a way that i think is useful to people and is and uh uh, like it can get some of the better parts of like public education for the masses where like i would love to be able to have these lectures just like saved and available so and and i'm and i'm not even going to really ask for uh um permission i'm just gonna do it and uh and and my students will have access to like the discord they'll all have exclusive access to that and we can have more like private conversations there also i wanted to say i watched your stream which was fascinating um because it was the first time i'd ever seen um the a professor giving a lecture um, with the ability to see a, an otherwise silent chat feed from the audience of students. And uh, that is a trip because, like, it, you don't need to interrupt the professor, but you can, like, drop a quick point of, like, confusion or request for clarification. Like, in, that, that was an interesting thing to see. Right. And then maybe some of your classmates already know the answer and then they can help you out instead of interrupting everybody by asking the teacher. Yeah. So there, there's definitely going to be some interesting technological affordances that um, uh, do actually increase uh, accessibility for, for other people. So that, that'll, that'll be interesting to see how, how that goes, because I also keep pretty close at, attention um uh records of like who is participating in class. And I'm really interested to see if I get new people participating in this new system. Uh, David, I have a question for you, actually. Okay. Did you notice uh, the administration at SUNY Albany kind of taking it into their own hands, um, you know, taking precautionary measures um, because of the lack of guidance from, you know, the the Trump administration? (laughs) Well, so uh, I found out that um, classes were canceled uh, from the Cuomo uh, speech. (laughs) And then, like two hours later, I started getting a flurry of emails from my department head, and then, uh, and then the the provost and the president. So, um, not really. It's, it, but it's mostly because of the administration, the administrative uh, design of SUNY is very uh, centralized. 
So they there are there aren't a lot of ways that SUNY can make decisions for itself. Okay. It has to it, it makes decisions at a state level about like closing classes and stuff. Um, but this I know it, New York State is obviously having to do a lot more stuff absent the federal government. Yeah, because I did notice that there was kind of a disconnect between the president's lack of response or their downplaying of how serious this is. Yeah. And also all the other smaller institutions. I guess SUNY Albany is the exception in that they're, you know, widespread and state associated. But I noticed other institutions taking matters into their own hands and closing down their schools because they weren't going to wait for anybody else to tell them to, what to do. Yeah, RPI closed pretty uh, much yeah, faster. That's true. Um, yeah, is, and, and because SUNY can only work at like um, a state level, like no individual campus can can make a decision like that by itself. But yeah, it's it's a very weird uh, step stepwise process that you hear from the governor before you hear from your department head about like whether or not you're going to go into work. <laughs> this sounds also like, and I'd be interested to hear your thoughts, Chris, like this is an interesting moment for all the various tendencies on the left dealing with, you know, notions of authoritarianism versus libertarianism. And what does it mean to have like a strong centralized government that can um, both sort of streamline responses to crises like this and really efficiently distribute goods and services. Hopefully it does that. It does, That obviously doesn't always work out. But I think in a case like China, you see where that works really, really well. They have like a strong authoritarian government. And so now we have as a as a kind of cobbled together series of leftist ideologies and tendencies, you know, when you have a crisis like this, it shows how tough it can be to manage it when we have sort of scattered, atomized institutions where what the state of New York is planning to do and is capable of doing is radically different from what Washington state or California or Texas is. And so, you know, I don't know, Chris, what do you think? Like, is this you're you're obviously our socialist libertarian contingent on the pod. <laughs> like, well, how, what, how does this make you feel about the state and our dependence on it and whether it should be a force for good uh, among us leftists or I don't know. What do you think? Well, I think that ultimately what we're talking about is whether or not the economy can be uh, re can be controlled in a way that brings about a desired outcome. Right. And so we're talking about the idea of um, you know, laissez-faire, free market capitalism that also runs the government, but it's all run for the purpose of just, in, you know, enriching the private uh, owners of the industries. Um, and that is going to not serve, say, a pandemic particularly well. You're going to get a lot of disaster capitalism. You're going to get people who are buying up, you know, all of the stuff and hoarding it. And you're going to get, you know, just like a lot of fucked up shit. And it gets pretty dystopian pretty quick where like we get really heartened by the fact that we can use enslaved people by the millions to generate hand sanitizer. Right. So like you see the American government in a way, you know, using its totalitarian powers, say, over people who have been incarcerated to force them to work for essentially nothing to produce the, uh, you know, commodities that a population desperately needs. Which they um, might not th be able to access, right? Yeah. Yep. Correct. Yeah. They're like it, it, it'll be totally interesting to see what type of controls are put out by this, you know, state produced from slave labor, like um, masks and um, you know, a hand sanitizer and stuff. 
uh, to see if they like limit the amount that individuals can you know accumulate <laughs> or what have you in terms of uh, distribution. Um, but I guess what I'm saying is like you have this fundamental question about like okay, we obviously as a herd species of eight billion need to have like strong capability to control our economy. Like when if we're not making the things we need to make, we need to be able to turn around and retool and make the things. And ideally, not just reactively, but like proactively to have like the stuff that we need in case of disaster like COVID, et cetera. Uh, and authoritarian states are like certainly one way to do that. And uh, you see the ability of like China to just like snap its fingers and have millions of people activated in a system like response that is like highly centrally organized and um, distributed in terms of chain of command and like ruthlessly effective in some aspects, you know, in terms of the yeah. enforced quarantining of areas, et cetera. And there's a lot of human rights questions to be considered. Um, and I would point to, you know, our, our buddy uh, Peter Kropotkin in terms of his vision uh, for a alternative society that has people powered control over the economy. And that like, that would be hypothetically even better uh, and just as effective because you'd still have the ability to organize voluntarily uh, in mass ways to stop making this commodity, start making that commodity, et cetera. Like have the actual like operational uh, direction of your material economy be able to be under the control of like, I don't know, a democratic process that was highly agile and like easy to, uh, you know, like engage with. Can if I, we wanted as, yeah, please. I just wanted to add on to, to what you said there because I I've kind of been looking at uh, China's response to this outbreak. And yes, while they had the infrastructure because you know their their very authoritarian regime allowed for it, um, they had the infrastructure to have a very robust response uh, and employ all the people that they needed to, right to to reinforce the quarantine. But in the beginning, because of their nationalism they the government wasn't willing to admit that they had a problem right they didn't want to listen to this one doctor uh dr lee wenliang who was one of the first people who founded the alarm and he eventually they okay so he eventually died but the government also suppressed any mention of him um because there were there was a lot of backlash from the people saying, look, this guy was trying to tell you that there is a problem, but you ignored him and you suppressed us. And he is literally our hero because he died while taking care of sick patients. Um, so it's, you know, I think the only way that they could have come back from that original misstep was through the same mechanisms of their like very authoritarian regime. Yeah. Right? You know, sometimes I wonder if, uh, uh, countries like China act like that because the United States is such a piece of shit when it comes to you know uh, uh, things like uh, pandemics, where the we're more inclined to find uh, another country to blame, and and so that everyone uh, that 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 uh, and 
No, I lost so Ch- it. China yeah. has to gird themselves against the inevitable being blamed by Western countries for right. Uh, yeah, yeah. So it, ch- it changes their their initial reaction. The calculus is like, oh god, what the hell is the United States yeah, going to do? I mean, we should I, we should shut up about this. I, I think <laughs> it's much more likely to attribute that to sort of a um, you know all na- the uh, the the essence of nationalism is chauvinism, right? So you kind of have to. I, th- I think that can be more easily attribute- attributed to the sort of authoritarian nationalist um, structures there. But but I do think that this is a really important question for the left because I just I I don't see like an- anarchist tendencies. Uh, anarchists are not the, the best um, systematic organizers. And I, I think that this is the kind of challenge that would really put to the test a lot of different leftist tendencies. Um, you know, when you have a crisis like this, you have to be able to mobilize tons and tons of resources very, very quickly to uh, uh, to achieve a common goal, to very quickly like take stock of what we have, what we need, what you have to be able to work across lines from scientists to manufacturers to community people, people on the ground in communities. And I think um, this is maybe where I tend towards like a strong state hand in managing crises. And so we all we all kind of I think at this moment have to ask ourselves like where do we draw that line? What do we want the state to do in in a moment like this? Because frankly like it's I think the Trump administration's inability to mobilize massive amounts of resources in, toward a single goal in a very quick and orderly manner uh, is going to result in the deaths of many many more people. Um well I I am definitely somebody who might my anarchism or my socialist libertarianism um, does not like preclude me from using, uh, you know, the mechanisms of power uh, by which you know we as a population can uh, control our economy to uh, do what we can to avoid like massive material suffering of like the people that our economy should be serving, you know. Um, and so, like, I think that the idea of like the United States being the strong state apparatus that it is utilizing whatever powers they have to uh, make sure that we make and distribute the commodities that we need to keep everyone alive. Like by all means, please go ahead, do that. Uh, And like, I think that, you know, uh, anarchism does not preclude high levels of organization. Um, And it's, you know, it ultimately comes down to like the, 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 the degree to which you want the state to be the purveyor of violence in a monopolistic way and how strong you want it to be at that as the way to get people to behave in the economy in a mutually beneficial way. Um, and, but I think there's other ways. Well, but um, to push back on that, that, like anarchism is yeah. inherently an anti-statist political ideology. Like it, it, it seeks the abolish yeah. the, the abolition of the state. So, yes, yes. But that's not to say uh, no organization. Like if you look into like anarcho syndicalism or even the anarcho communism that Peter Kropotkin talks about, it's not just like, yeah, I mean, he definitely does wax on the um, uh, incredibly idealistic when he talks about how people will just autonomously know and have the skills and, you know, a level of organization and human uh, brotherhood will just burst forth overnight. And, like, Which, take by over the way, everything. the bare shelves of rubbing alcohol Give a oh, yeah, very yeah. important uh, <laughs> challenge to yeah, Kropotkin exa- right now. You know, um, exactly, um, Karma. I don't exactly, know if you've yeah. had a chance to hear any of our Kropotkin reading series. 
Oh, no, I haven't. So so Kropotkin very much romanticizes the working classes and says that in moments of crisis, we'll all band together and make sure that everybody has what they need and we'll fairly distribute the foodstuffs and the clothing and the shelter and we'll just kind of magically come together in these moments of, of revolution and, and overthrow and like take care of each other. And I think this is a moment that demands that we evaluate what kind of social and cultural mores are are driving our actions. And I think this crisis shows that we do not have solidarity across class lines to ensure that I, I mean, I've seen a ton of people calling for mutual aid groups and making sure mm-hmm. that the you know, the most vulnerable members of our community have food and water and the things that they need while they can't go out and potentially expose themselves to this virus. And those are great. But they they feel very small relative to the mm-hmm. challenge that we currently face. Um, and so, you know, because this is a, pol- a podcast about leftist politics, that seems sort of at the heart of how we evaluate this crisis and how we move forward is what what kind of politics would have what kind of governing structures would have dealt with this better? I think I used to kind of fall in line with that thinking and that I had a lot of faith in spontaneous class consciousness, consciousness. You know, I think the more that I realize how much work goes into organizing, none of it is really spontaneous. You know, we have to be doing this work constantly to create Mm -hmm. community, to create strong community. And it just just does not happen overnight. And we're seeing with the Bernie Sanders election, like he has lost working class voters that he won in 2016. Like his base is shrinking. It's one of the reasons that I think we're looking at what some are saying is the death knell of his campaign is because. He's not winning. Like if the if the campaign, the the theory of change is predicated on building a strong working class movement. I don't want to suggest that he hasn't done that. But there are a lot of working class people, especially older black people, but even a lot of like white blue collar Midwestern voters who went for him last time and aren't going for him this time. And I think we have to be very careful about romanticizing working class people. And they're like that we are at historically low levels of class consciousness and solidarity building. We have to we Mm. have to deal with that question before anything else can happen. Yeah, I would would wonder how uh, we could look at, say, uh, the Spanish Civil War and anarchists uh, participate participation in the Civil War as like a A P.O.U.M. Yeah. Yeah. Like how they organized um, in that sort of crisis, because they 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 do like sort of, there's there are things that you suspend about um uh 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 i don't know <laughs> like like you you you're you're willing to uh um tolerate more hierarchy in moments of 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 crisis so you know it's it's possible that but but i think that's all predicated on the idea that like we were saying like you have a culture in which you uh, are highly resilient and that you are talking to each other a lot and you trust one another enough that you uh, willingly relinquish your freedom to someone else uh, in in a hierarchical organizational schema. So yeah, I, I don't know what um yeah the, the the politics of COVID are are very very complex. <laughs> True indeed. Yeah. All right. So everything in my life has been sort of turned upside down by this COVID, um, you know, infection. And uh, my brother works at a bar, um, indefinitely closed, at least, you know, like, I don't know when they're going to reopen. You know, my my fiance is working from home. Uh, 
her company, you know, has a lot of people that do have to keep going to work, but they, you know, as you pointed out, go through stages of gowning such that they're not at risk to each other or what they're trying to develop, which is treatment drugs for COVID. Um, and everything is chaotic. Um, I'm really curious, as I'm sure all of our listeners are that are listening to this in real time, um, you know, when things are going to start going back to normal, like when are we going to be uh, back to work and when are we going to have, you know, uh, punk shows and, you know, like, <laughs> yeah, Chris, I'm really sorry. Like, 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 <laughs> Excuse me. I'm sorry. <laughs> oh, God, I'm infected. Chris, I was really, really <laughs> sorry to hear about your show being canceled, by the way. Oh, yeah, but, like, it's just the, the least of the concerns in my yeah, mind right now. Up. Like, I'm thinking about my, my mom, and I'm thinking about health of everybody, and, you know, just trying to make sure that, like, like how bad could this get? How bad will it likely get? And, like, you know, I don't know. You, you seem to be the most informed about these the nature of these things. Yeah, so, I mean, when I think about myself and all of my peers, I'm not too concerned, um, but I just don't let myself get to that place where I start worrying about my mom, you know, like she's getting up there. Mm -hmm. She's like 63. So she's definitely in the range of those people who are, you know, most susceptible. Um, I do think that it's going to get worse before it gets better. There's this, what we want to do now is flatten the curve, right? So instead of like a huge spike in cases, uh, we want to kind of just like taper that out a little bit over time. And that's because if we have a huge spike in cases, our healthcare system isn't going to be able to treat all of those patients at one time. We're literally going to overload the system and it's not designed to do that. So it might take, you know, a little while for things to get better. But I do know that there are already preclinical trials for some vaccine candidates. There's this Canada-based biotech company that's a subsidiary from a Japanese company. And they, I think last Thursday, actually, yeah, they, uh, they were able to develop a virus-like particle as a vaccine candidate. And they're currently in preclinical trials for it. I know a lot of other companies um, are on their way too. So vaccine development, right, because that's kind of my area of expertise. It's, it's a long process, right? But it's a long process under normal circumstances. And the way that I've been exposed to vaccine development, it takes years, you know, to go from a small mouse model to passing to clinical trials in humans. Um, but the fact that they're already, I think they developed it like 10 days, at least it's Canada-based biotech company. They developed the, the virus-like particle 10 days after they received the sequencing of the virus. Like, People were probably working around the clock. That is unheard of, honestly. But Canada <laughs> has, yeah. but Canada has a public health care. How can they innovate in biomedicine? <laughs> yeah, the more socialist your right. health care, the more bad it does things, is what mm-hmm. I heard. I heard Cuba was uh, volunteering its top scientists to, uh, in their research to the rest David of the world. David is currently right. in a fierce Facebook battle with somebody about that, about that issue. Um, yeah, they, oh uh, uh, it, it's the wording of a, of a tweet that I shared where they, say, where they said discovered uh, a drug when it's, you know, it's um, one of these antivirals that have been around for a while, but um, that was like invented in Switzerland, but it was mi- or Swiss. Uh, yes. Is Swiss referring to Switzerland or Sweden? Yes. I think, this, I no, think Swiss uh, is a larger 
cultural huh. formation than just Switzerland. <laughs> That's annoying. Boy, I'm not an expert on this topic. Yeah. Though, let me tell you. <laughs> All right. Yeah. So there's uh, yeah, some European company. Yeah. Uh, but I think there's like Swiss people in Germany. I don't oh, fucking know, That's, man. That's all... The Nordic area. Yeah. The the Nordic models. The blonde countries. people. Yeah. Yeah, developed yeah, something. yeah. Oh, my God. So a bunch of Aryan Nazis <laughs> created this. <laughs> uh, uh, created this antiviral. Um uh, but no, the uh, the idea is that, or, uh, like, the, the whole thing is just that um, Cuba makes a bunch of antivirals, and uh, they've, I would assume, have innovated in the production of antivirals, which, to, in my mind, like, uh, innovation is uh, just as important as invention, and all the different ways that you can produce uh, a specific invention, like, at scale, can completely change uh, you know the the actual thing, whether it's an antiviral oh, or, yeah. or a phone or whatever. So yeah, arguing yeah. over semantics at a time like this when we're talking about a, so a fucking, like a massively I mean... economically depressed country that's fallen victim to U.S. sanctions for decades is doing everything in its power with some of the like most world class medical professionals on yeah. the fucking planet. Yeah, it's just absurd. Liberals will do fucking anything to discredit leftist. Uh, 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 achievements. achievements. Yeah, thank yeah. you. The more we leave countries like that behind, the less likely they are going to be uh, in the future to share their discoveries with so us. So on that exact <laughs> note, actually, so on the flip side of, of all of this is Gilead, this American pharmaceutical company that is trying to preemptively keep any advancements it might make on treating the testing for and treating the coronavirus from falling into the hands of China because they're afraid that China will take this, you know, what it considers to be intellectual property and spread it to the global south. Um, So they're currently in a court battle while they're developing testing and treatment hasn't even been like finalized yet hasn't even proven to be super effective. They want to be able to charge people fifty to a hundred dollars per test, and they're fighting tooth and nail to keep that proprietary testing out of the hands of China because they don't want them to share it with the world. I mean, how is that? How is that not a crime against humanity? Like, is it is always a crime my against, question? Yeah, it, it it fucking is, and it's absolutely wild that you know, like this is a this is a critical moment for for global capitalism and, fi- and financial financialization of the of you know our global networks and i think i've seen a lot of leftists saying that like this is a moment of opportunity and i i don't disagree with that but it's so hard for me to see what that opportunity is and i'm sorry but to me like community level mutual aid groups i don't think i think it's a great thing to do but it's not gonna answer this crisis it's it's not enough mm-hmm. and i don't know what enough looks like for us yeah i think i think enough has to uh be like everything like i think you know we need to marshal state power to uh to to reorder certain elements of our economy to be a, a temporary less you know villainously like vile uh, so that people can be able to survive this because, you know, keep, keeping society going like, you know, it should be our uh, our concern uh, when it relates to issues of uh, fundamental, um, you know, existential threat. And uh, when it comes to pandemics like that, I mean, this is an existential threat. Don't get me wrong. But like if I, I did a little bit of numbers, which was I heard that it doubles every six days. Uh, in terms of the amount of people contaminated, 
in that it's going to have a fatality rate of people who are contaminated of around one uh, percent. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, in the end, one percent. I heard and, it was way, uh, way higher than one percent. But but even if it's one percent, like if it doubles every six days, that works out to be about three and a half months uh, till every single person in the United States has it. And if that happens and one percent of us die, that's three point five million people dying over the next three and a half months. And like, you know, this this is going to if we're going to deal with it appropriately, if everybody says if everything everyone who seems to be an authority on this says is true, like we're in this for a while. And, uh, you know, I think that we're going to need state power operating properly. We're going to need local volunteer power operating properly. And we're going to have to take care of each other um, in both direct ways and systemic ways and we're going to have to you know reorient our priorities because like there was this article i was reading that was talking about what if the dow went to zero like we would obviously not you know lose any of our productive capability like we have all the same tools and you know trade routes and you know vehicle infrastructure and everything like if we wanted we could just keep going to our jobs and make the world run can Um, i just say can yeah. I just say that if it if the stock market crashes, I won't be affected because I have a shit ton of gold and silver. So, oh, man, you should <laughs> not say that, that on mic because well, I guess we don't know where you live, but I will say you never know. Might be a, coming for you. As, <laughs> as as a Jew, I have some tips for how to hide your gold if you know if you need that. Don't tell them about the Bank of Zion because. <laughs> As a shiksa who married you purely for the shekels, I don't know. Oh, my God. (laughs) Wait, can I? Okay, listen. Can I seriously ask you a question? Yeah. From a non-Jew to a Jew? Sure. I want to use the word goy and goyim. Can I, like... I think that's fine. Am I... Yeah. Fuck yeah. Right on. (laughs) (laughs) Bless bless you, my child. You got to pass. What, what, I don't you like to use the G word. <laughs> what, <laughs> like, I'm looking for gender neutral ways to address my partner, and I thought boyfriend was an, a really good way. <gasps> oh, it's brilliant. Whoa, I love it. Oh, nice. Can I be your and boyfriend? S- yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> and also squirrel friend, <sighs> if you like the, you know. So, um, yeah. Okay, so we do have this final question about getting back to normal, and I don't, at this point, I'm kind of suspicious of how useful it is to even talk about that, because I think we already know so little um, about how quickly this will spread, how widespread it will be. But so there's this idea of flattening the curve. Karma, can you tell us a little bit about that? Like, what does it mean to flatten the curve, and what, what is that? Like, how do we sure. do that, and what are its promises for the future? Sure. So I'm not an epidemiologist, but the curve that's been kind of like been passed around on social media has to do with the rate of cases and infections. And we want to stay away from a very tall and skinny curve where we have a huge influx of patients over a short period of time, because that will literally overload our healthcare system. There are not enough beds, not enough healthcare workers to treat so many people who are susceptible to to getting ill from COVID-19. But with, you know, proper practices, being responsible, like washing your hands frequently, doing what you can as an individual, socially distancing yourself, um, 
what we hope to see is a flattening of the curve where we have, you know, we, we spread out the number of cases over a longer period of time so that we don't overload our healthcare system. And I think that's the most important thing right now. We don't we don't want a situation where there's too many people to take care of. And that's why I brought up earlier that difference between um, like the number of available ICU beds having a massive influence on because even like in Italy right now, you see a triage situation where they're literally just evaluating a patient's potential to survive and treating them based on that. Uh, it was sort of like terrifying triage. Oh. Uh, um uh like those factors like to take literal, death, literal panels. death panels um and so like so in new york for example has cuomo has said that new york has 3200 icu beds and that uh we don't have the capacity to build more now contrast that with china which was able to throw up all of these temporary hospitals in a very short period of time and so like that to me is that's it seems based on what i've read that that's what social distance is actually useful for. It's not that it will, over the entire course of this virus, ensure that fewer people get affected over, like, let's say the next year. Rather, what it does is by flattening that curve, it ensures that our healthcare system is, is less likely to be so bombarded by cases that we just can't keep up and lots of people die very quickly for that reason. Right. Exactly. Like I heard there's only 78,000 uh, ventilators currently in stock, like across the United States. Um, and only like a hundred thousand, a hundred and something thousand ICU beds at all. Yeah. And so the, like we in world war one and world war two retooled our economy, like by force of state. And we went from making cutlery to bayonets and from making, you know, uh, model T's to Humvees or whatever, you know what I'm saying? The equivalent was. Um, and we, flower sacks and dresses. Know, yeah. And so <laughs> we basically just like got our shit together as like a people, you know, on the national boundary, um, to prepare to go to mortal, uh, death with an enemy, you know, which was other people. Um, and so like the idea of, of it, I think it's sort of irresponsible of us to not be using, you know, power to, put more ventilators into manufacturing as soon as possible. Like, you know, figure out how to, how to retool companies for that or whatever. Like, seems I actually think a huge inadequate. part of that, though, is, is the lack of strong centralized... Because, like, during World War II, you know, we had a much stronger, more centralized, like, government authority to encourage manufacturers to do that than we have now, I think. Or at least there was a will to do that like kind of philosophically at the highest echelons of government than there is right now. I mean, Trump is falling all over himself to intervene as little as fucking possible in the, you know, day to day operations of of of, of our of our government and our economy. Yeah, I mean, I, David's I, giving me side eye, so I think he might disagree with me. Well, yeah, because like the, the theory <laughs> of the unitary executive after 9-11 has massively well, increased but the power. centralized government isn't isn't a. I don't necessarily <laughs> just mean like the the executive branch. I mean like the entirety of entirety of government being able to control the the economy or direct. Yeah, you know, apply yeah. even just soft force. Yeah, I I, I think yeah. of, I think a lot of it is I I I would think it a lot of it is cultural that like because like yeah. we see what happens when like 
like the banks say like, oh, no, we're all going to go out of business if you don't give us one point five trillion dollars. And then like the next day they get one point five trillion dollars. Yeah, now they're it. talking about yeah. injecting the it, airline industry with federal right. funds. Like, yeah, are you yeah. fucking kidding me. One of them, like a, an incredibly mm-hmm. destructive ecological force, the airline industry is now going to get. Like government subsidies or fucking cruise ships yeah yeah so i, I, I <laughs> yeah and and if they do at the minimum they should just make them into non-profit uh transportation agencies yeah yeah just nationalize like, them you, yeah. you know yeah it, just make it cover costs and uh benefits of all the workers so this has been you know our covid episode um we've talked about the coronavirus on previous episodes this time we really because we had the benefit of karma's um participation we really wanted to hone in on it and also because uh we have been sick and maybe we're infected i don't know hopefully not but there is a sliver of good news right david yeah so china um, built 14 new hospitals in total to combat the coronavirus, uh, two alone in Wuhan, where it started. And um, there's a video uh, that's gone viral, uh, several million views of uh, uh, hospital workers taking off their masks sort of ceremoniously because they have just absolutely like demolished the amount of new cases taking them off properly i might add karma just so you know they're, <laughs> right, yeah. they're removing them from the elastic bit behind the ear they're not touching <laughs> the actual mask part itself so yeah so on saturday health chief said that there had been 13 new deaths and just 11 new cases including people who recently arrived from other affected countries more than sixty-five thousand people have recovered from disease in china and that's while we, you know, are are just like coughing into McDonald's French fries and handing it out to the elderly. Yeah, it's a, a really um, quite so, incredible. So they have in Wuhan, they have just closed their final temporary hospital. So they are now working at capacity under normal circumstances, which is, you know, really in- incredible given that it was the epicenter. I mean, I guess we might expect rationally that that would be the first place that it would start to sort of resolve itself to whatever degree that's likely um but it is i think really really promising to show that like immediate effective intervention from what you know the most powerful forces in our society can actually be a force for good um that gives me a little bit of hope hopefully we'll eventually i think we're going to have to rely on more local municipalities and, and state governments to actually make that effective intervention but at least this sort of proves the case that maybe it's possible at some level. Yeah, I think it shows that containment works. Containment works because, and beds works yeah. and 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 medical professionals <laughs> like it. because because even if you flatten the curve, right? Uh cu- currently right now if we look at the projections of how many people are going to be infected, um the it, to flatten that sort of curve uh and spread it out over time instead of like massive influx of diseases uh, of cases all at once um that would be like i was reading something it was like a decade long curve to flatten it to the level of um being able to to treat people with the current capacity that we have so we have to increase capacity and then also contain people so that new cases don't arrive because if we just want to keep our capacity the same and then just uh spread out the same amount of infections it would it would literally take a decade you know so we have to contain people and we have to build new capacity there's like just no other way to deal with this it seems like 
maybe we need a uphaul or sorry that's not the word overhaul <laughs> we overhaul yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> sorry daughter of an immigrant over here uh <laughs> we need to overhaul our friggin healthcare system it's already stressed as it is what yeah. if, what if everyone could go to the doctor free at the point of service that's crazy talk <gasps> that's I, crazy what? talk no other country's done it ever <laughs> so I'm really we're, ex- we're recording on Sunday I'm really excited to see I will veto that <laughs> Chris personally um, you know tonight's the debate you'll by the time you're hearing this show the debate will have already happened I hope Biden gets his, his ass handed to him I hope Bernie totally kills it um, the volunteer effort goes on in terms of the Bernie campaign which is um, I'm personally of the opinion that the campaign's pretty much over but I you know, I'm trying not to be too hopeless about it. I'm still making calls and stuff. I hope that you guys are, too. And so it'll be interesting to see how this crisis, I think it's already changing a lot of minds. I think the worse it gets, there's already I've seen accounts of people who voted for Biden uh, in their states that have already had their primaries who wish now that they could go back and vote for Bernie specifically because of this crisis. So it'll be interesting to see how it changes not just the election but just general discourse and the popularity of you know universal health care is already incredibly popular i think it's only going to become more popular in the face of this crisis so this is going to happen. can i also say yeah go ahead can i also say um yeah i feel like in some ways this crisis has kind of refocused our national discourse because a lot of people are now questioning like what if we had universal health care what if we had more job security and paid sick leave Just this past Congress um, in Albany, we were so close to passing the paid sick leave bill. Yeah. But we didn't. And what what would it look like in Albany County if that did? You know, so many less people would be worrying about their like livelihood. Yeah. And so many of the careers that are the most, you know, it's not fucking like the professional managerial class that has to worry about being a disease vector. It's fucking hospitality workers and retail workers and service workers who are going to be the biggest vectors for this disease, who are also the people who can't take a couple of days off because their wages depend on every single day that they work. And so without these social programs in place that ensure um, not, you know, a, a minimum, a strong minimum wage and paid sick leave and benefits and all of these things, those have such a massive effect on the spread of this disease. It's great that a bunch of white collar workers now get to work from home, but, you know, they're working, they're operating in an office environment where they might have contact with the same 20 people every day. If you're a bartender or a server or a retail worker, your job is still to show up to work and have contact with potentially dozens or hundreds of people in the course of a day. I mean, it's such a, it really does show just how broken the system is in a way that I don't think anything in recent history quite has, has shown that yet. Yeah. And and all these services are so black boxed and like you try to distance customers from the uh, producers of the labor that, you know, just because you have your groceries or whatever delivered to you from Amazon or Instacart or Uber Eats or something like that, that still means that there's like probably at least a dozen people per order that had to come to work that day to make that happen. Yeah. You know, so like it's uh, there's just like so, what so you're saying many is fully automated luxury communism. I am today, tomorrow. Yes. Forever. Once again, yes. 
You forgot gay. And yeah. gay, I did forget gay. I thought that as the second I said it, and I was like, I left out gay. Mandatory oh. homosexuality. Yes. It's the only thing that works. I'm here for it. <laughs> I recently discovered gay TikTok. The uh, algorithm for TikTok is really fascinating. So it's like you discover a whole subsection of TikTok. And if you watch it. It was video, originally gay, wasn't it's it? Ve- well, it was originally, I think, Chinese. But yeah, it's yeah. gotten very, very gay. But because because the Chinese government is like, fuck gay this, exactly. fuck gay that. They suppressed it, but I think TikTok was like a gay haven. It's wasn't very, it? a gay haven? I love the I love gay TikTok. I also uh, black TikTok <laughs> is good. Um, Bernie TikTok, mwah, chef's gifts, beautiful. Whoa. Yeah. Okay, so any final thoughts before we wrap this up, fellas and ladies? Uh, be gay, do crime. Be gay, do crime. But socially, I isolate yourself while you're doing the crimes. Be gay and do crime alone. Yeah. Or with only a few close friends who have been asymptomatic and haven't had yeah. contacts with vectors. Go go download Brokeback and, Mountain illegally on BitTorrent. Shit, that is a gay crime yes. to do by yourself. I love yes. that. Yes. Would you pirate a car? Yes. Yes. Yes, I would. I would totally 3D print a car if I could. Yeah, same. Same. Hell yeah. All right. Someday we will. So. Gotta survive this. Um, okay, so you can find us on Twitter. Ironweeds Pod. Ironweeds Pod. <laughs> you, can, you can find us on Instagram. Ironweeds Pod. You can shoot us an email at ironweedspod at gmail.com. It's tough. You know, the dis- the social distancing is, is making it tough to harmonize yeah. for the pod. Um, <laughs> we'll practice more. Head over to our Patreon. We already have our two bonus episodes out for this month um we'll try to make another one but i'm not sure it'll happen just because i've been pretty low energy uh, also on patreon you can find uh, a short my very first uh, twitch video that i did about the cities of communism and that's been posted publicly anybody can get that yeah. link to go watch that that's not on our iron weeds twitch that's uh, <clears throat> on mine because it was a, a practice run for what i'm doing for class but uh it's a twitch.tv slash da banks uh no underscore like on my twitter it's just all yeah. one word, DA Banks. Um, and no Kropotkin this week because I haven't really been up for um, recording. My throat's still not 100% back, so I haven't been able to record Kropotkin or anything else, which has sucked. But Except for this. Uh, except for this. And even now I'm real tired. But you'll get uh, next week we'll do the chapter on luxury, and that'll be fun. That's I've already read it. It's a fun read, so. Um, and Karma, thank you so much for joining us. This was incredibly enlightening, and we're grateful to you for sharing your um, expertise with us. Yeah, thank you for reaching out. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Of course. Yeah, thanks for coming on. And thank you for listening. Uh, you're, you're the real hero. Yeah, you, if we ha- if we <laughs> sold tote bags, we'd give them to you. But we do have stickers. And you can get a sticker <laughs> yeah. for uh, paltry $5 a month at Ironweeds po- at, <laughs> at patreon.com slash ironweeds. All right. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Peace.